The children of Israel are a funny group of people, and oftentimes we find ourselves reading the stories of the book of Exodus. We find ourselves reading the, the text of Scripture, and sometimes we can see ourselves in their position, but a lot of times we look at the things that they've done and the ways that they've acted, and we think, how foolish. What a, what a, what a dumb choice that they made. But often, I think if it came down to it, you and I would make the same decisions and we would have the same complaints. We would live in the same manner that they often lived. And the Lord has been faithful to rescue them as he said that he would. He had uh, made a covenant with Abraham. He had told uh, his people that he would rescue them from slavery, from oppression in the land of Egypt. The people of of Israel were enslaved in the land of Egypt for 430 plus years. And after that time period, they cry out to the Lord and the Lord sends this deliverer, Moses. He goes down and he rescues the children of Israel through a series of plagues. Now, these plagues are brought upon the land of Egypt and Moses is the one to... uh, bring about these plagues, but it's clear, it's clear in scripture that it's not Moses's work. It's the Lord's work. It's the Lord who is ultimately acting to save his people. He is, uh, Moses is merely this mouthpiece. Moses is merely this vessel through which God works. And God is faithful to rescue and save his people. And one of the lessons that his people need to learn, and that I think that you and I need to be told again and again, is this message of God's faithfulness, right? Because there's there's nothing that we need in today's time more than faithfulness. We live in the generation, in the time frame, in the period in history where we have extremely short attention spans, when we live in a time and era of entitlement, we live in, in, in a time and era of our desire to discard things, to throw things out when they are broken rather than fix them. We do not have the work ethic that past generations have had. And we need faithfulness. We need faithfulness in our jobs, in our careers. We need faithfulness just, you know, to be uh, consistent members of our society. We need faithfulness in our marriages. We're, We're too often willing to throw in the towel, give up. And that is not God's character. He is teaching them of his faithfulness. He has done this at the Red Sea when it didn't seem like there was a way for them to be saved. As the children of Israel come out of Egypt, they make their way to this position along the sea, which is really a not great position from a military standpoint. They're stuck. But it's the Lord who says, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to make a way when it seems like there's no way. He has done this for them in the wilderness, and he has just brought them through three tests in the previous chapters that we looked at. First, he brought them to the waters at Meribah. They had been wandering in the desert for a number of days and were running out of water. And they see this water off in the distance. They start, you know, this millions of people, they begin to charge towards the water. They get there. They have the appearance of water. They can feel it. They can touch it. It's there, cool to their touch. But then when they drink it, it's bitter. Nothing worse than having it within grasp, but then being unable to enjoy and be satisfied. 
There's not a way for them to drink this water. But it's the Lord who, again, makes a way. He says, even when the things that you were counting on failed you, even when it looked like you had it, those things will ultimately fail you. It's only the Lord who will be faithful. He will never fail. And he goes in and he tells Moses to put this uh, log into the water and the water becomes sweet. They're able to drink it. Again, right after that, the children of Israel, they seem to forget God's faithfulness again. And so he has to demonstrate it again. They begin to grumble that they have no food, which is totally not true because they have a ton of food with them. But we find out from the Psalms that what they're really complaining about is that they're craving uh, the foods of Egypt. They want, they're essentially grumbling against the Lord and saying, you know, you haven't provided for me, God. And the Lord, he's so gracious with them. He provides for them this manna. He provides for them this bread from heaven. And he brings quail. Now, in that moment, the Lord satisfies them with his faithfulness in providing bread. But what we see ultimately is that he's done this so that they might see his faithfulness over 40 years in the wilderness. But then they're also told to put some of this bread from heaven with which God provides faithfully to, uh, to them over 40 years in this jar. They're to carry it with them for future generations. And we saw that 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 bread ultimately points to the bread of life. Jesus says that I am the bread of life. Come and eat of me. Be satisfied. Because he's ultimately the climax of God's faithfulness. It's in Jesus that we find God's ultimate faithfulness on display. When we are craving other things, when we are thinking, you know, I really want the things of the world. I really want to, to live in my way and feel entitled to do what I want to do. Jesus stands there and says, those things won't satisfy. They will fail you. Sure, the Bible acknowledges, and, and I think we would all agree that sin is fun for a season. Chasing down and doing what we want is fun for a season. But ultimately, it disappoints. When you're sitting there in your room, when you turn off the lights at night, you get tucked in, you're by yourself, things are quiet. You really start to get a feeling that those things you've been chasing after, they don't satisfy. Sure, you can pretend when it's the days out, you know, there's light and you're busy. Sure, you can you pretend. And, and maybe you even convinced yourself that they do satisfy. But you know in your heart of hearts, when you're chasing after other things, when it's quiet, when you're alone, there's something there that's doesn't quite, it's not quite right. It's only Jesus, it's his faithfulness that satisfies. Now again, last week, we looked at the water from the rock. The children of Israel have already seen God's power to turn the water into blood in the Nile. They've already seen God's power over water at the Red Sea to part a huge body of water. They've already seen God's power to control water when they come to the waters of Meribah and the waters are bitter and they can't drink them. They've seen God's, God's power over water. But yet somehow in chapter 17, the first portion they're out in the wilderness again, and then they don't have any water. It's like, man, if only we knew someone who could fix our water problem, right? And we sit at a distance, and we kind of scoff, like, man, they're so dumb. They didn't, I can't believe they didn't remember. But we're just the same. We turn inward. We look at our problems, our situation, 
rather than setting our eyes upon God and his faithfulness. And that's what he's trying to get across to them. It's there at this rock. The Lord goes before uh, the children of Israel and Moses takes some of the elders and they go and God commands Moses to strike this rock and water pours forth. Fresh, life-giving water for his people in the wilderness. God's faithfulness is on display there. And not just on display there in providing water for his people, but like the manna, this ultimately points to Jesus, the rock who will be struck down, who is struck down at the cross, and from him pours this life-giving water for his people. And now we come to another test, another reminder of God's faithfulness. In Exodus chapter 17, we see the first battle that the children of Israel have to deal with. Now, God has been super gracious to uh, his people. He's been super gracious. Before they even came to the Red Sea, they had a straight shot to go right out of Egypt to the promised land. But the Lord, knowing their hearts, said, I don't want you guys to be discouraged. So I'm not going to take you that way because the Philistines are right there and they're ready to fight right away. He's like, I'm going to take you this little long way. We're going to have a little uh, detour in the desert. We're going to go out into the wilderness. And it's in that wilderness, that proving ground of the wilderness, where God prepares his people. This is what Jesus did when he was upon the earth. Before he started his earthly ministry, he went out into the wilderness and spent time with the Lord for 40 days. He spent time out there being prepared And so, now they come to their first real battle. We read in verse 8, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now, Amalek, this is a group of people who are nomads. Their lineage, essentially, is traced back to Jacob's brother, Esau, and there are some uh, long-standing tensions between these two tribes. They have a bit of a feud going on. But I want you to note here that the children of Israel are at this place, Rephidim. We saw last week as we looked at this that this means resting place. Rephidim means resting place. It's the Lord providing some rest for his people at Rephidim. And Amalek comes in, and they fight with Israel. They just attack. This is a totally unprovoked attack. The the children of Israel are at this resting place that the Lord has provided for them. They have this fresh water that God has made uh, appear. There was no water, and God said, here, rest here with me. And now they're under attack. And and I think that you and I would recognize that this is the position most often where we struggle. This is the position of our hearts, right? Where God is trying to tell us, hey, here's a resting place. I'm trying to get you guys to understand, rest in me. I've provided a place for that. And right when we get there, right when it's like, okay, I'm learning how to rest, Lord. All of a sudden, the enemy comes out of nowhere, unprovoked, and just attacks us. He's trying to get in our business and distract our hearts and our minds. 
I know this week that this is something that I have struggled with greatly. With the turmoil that's going on in my life, I have constantly had to be in this state of, of tension between, Lord, take my anxiety, my worry, my fear. I'm laying these things down at your feet. I want to rest in you. And then right there, just five minutes later, creeping up, the enemy's bringing these things back. Worry, fear. And essentially what, it, what it's prompting me to do is to launch into like, well, I got to do all this work now. I got I to gotta defend myself and I got to get into this place where I'm doing all this research and I'm preparing. But the Lord's trying to teach his people that when you're resting in him, Sure, you're going to have to continue your life, but it's the Lord who will go with you. He will fight for you. He will protect you. You're going to have to go into battle sometimes, but ultimately it's not your work that will accomplish what God wants to do. He's trying to get us to rest in him, to trust in him, to see that ultimately he has already won this victory. Now, this attack here is a super cowardly attack. We find more info about this in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Moses reminds the children of Israel, he says to them in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God? You see, what's, what, what Moses is telling them here is the character of this people of Amalek they target the weak, the helpless, the stragglers at the back as they're traveling. They're not coming to the front where the strongest warriors are. They make this sneak attack on defenseless women and children. And Moses says, there's no fear of God. This is the tactic of the enemy that you and I often deal with. We take uh, the enemy's motives for granted. Right? When I'm wrestling with my son, he's, he wants to come into the house and fight. There's this type of grappling that we do, and he's, he's going for it. But I'm restraining my, my uh, strength. I'm putting my strength under control. Because I know that I could do great damage to him, but the point of our time together is to spend time together and to wrestle and have fun. I know that I could do great damage. But this is not the case of how the enemy works with us. He has no restraint. Your mind is a battlefield that the, the enemy wants to attack. And not only your mind, your body, everything about you. The enemy is standing against the Lord and he will pick you off. If you are near the back of the pack, if you are someone who is weak, if you are someone who is a straggler, if you're young in the Lord, this is how the enemy works. He wants to come and he just wants to fire arrow after arrow against you. He will do whatever he can. There is no mercy. There is no strength that is under control. You will uh, face the full attack. Now, as God's people, the, the, the thing that we should do to respond as we should rest in him, to be with his people. We rest in God, in God when, we're, when we are under attack, when we're making it known to others. 
If you're at the back of the pack and you're weak, you're a straggler, you're tired, come tell someone. Don't just stay under attack. Tell somebody else. We're all walking this journey together, and we've all been weak at some point. We've all been under attack at some point. Tell somebody else so we can protect you. We can bring you in, we can love on you, and we can put you in the middle so that way you don't get attacked. We don't want you to just get destroyed by the enemy. Amalek attacks at the back. Now, Amalek, they are a well-known threat to Israel. This will uh, keep recurring throughout Israel's history. And so Moses, verse 9, he says to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now, we find here in Exodus chapter 17, verse 9, the very first mention of Joshua. It's the first time he's mentioned. Now, we don't really get an introduction to who he is here because if you recall, the purpose of this book is for future generations to remember God's faithfulness. And so this would already have occurred and happened and his future readers would understand who Joshua was. They know who he is. He doesn't need an introduction here. They would be familiar with him. And so Joshua, he will become the next successor to Moses. And Moses tells him, take a group of men, some soldiers, and go out to fight. Now, in previous encounters, God takes up the battle completely. In the battle at the Red Sea, Moses told the people, you only need to stand and watch. It's your job just to stay where you are, continue with your camping trip. The Lord's going to do his thing. That, that was it. That was their only job. But now, Moses tells Joshua, it's time to participate in the battle with the Lord. Now, they will fight, but the Lord will make it clear it is he who fights with them and for them. They're going to go out to battle, but it's God's battle. The timing is interesting. He says, tomorrow, this is going to happen tomorrow. And Moses says, tomorrow, I'm going to go on top of the hill. We're going to climb this hill and we're going to stand there with the staff of God in my hand. The timing here is interesting because I think this is a hint for us to trust in God's faithfulness. If you had just been attacked, pretty much the next thought in your mind is like, when is the next attack going to happen? Strategically, it would happen when you're not ready for it. So it had to take some trust here for God's people to just wait, to let it be. Most often, we want the Lord to act immediately. We want him to be like, boom, you, this is what we're going to do? Okay, like, let's see it happen right now. But God's timing is perfect. It's measured out to the exact moment when help should arrive. He is both working in our hearts. He's preparing us beforehand for the battle and for the response after. God's timing is perfect. 
I was watching uh, Lord of the Rings with my, with my kids last night. Um, we just got back from our long journey, and we were like, hey, like, some other marathon movie. Let's watch a movie about a journey. But I, I like the line that Gandalf gives to, to Frodo there as he's making the way in, and Frodo's like, you're late. That's often our mindset about the Lord. Lord, you're late. You're not showing up on time. This is when I want it. But Gandalf, he replies, he says, uh, you know, a wizard is never late. He, reply, he, he arrives exactly uh, when he means to. He doesn't arrive too early. He doesn't arrive too late. He arrives exactly when he means to arrive. This is how God's help works. He arrives exactly when he means to. Not when you and I want. We've already seen the children of Israel try to pressure the Lord into working earlier. In the last passage, Moses he seems to try to appeal to the Lord and be like, Lord, they're getting ready to stone me. And God's like, okay. Like, he's not going to help more or less because Moses is a little bit stressed out. God already intends to help in his timing, to provide for his people in his timing. So why do we wait until tomorrow here? Why are we waiting? Well, there's a pattern found in Exodus, and this is a clue for uh, future generations there's a pattern found in Exodus with the timing of tomorrow. Every time tomorrow is mentioned, it's connected with the defeat of Israel's enemies. Back in Exodus chapter 8, the Lord told Moses, I will put a division between my people and your people. Moses is speaking here to Pharaoh. Tomorrow the sign shall happen. Again, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 5, the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Down in Exodus 9, verse 18, Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy, heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. But most recently it was used in chapter 16, verse 23. He said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. You see, what he's doing by, by tying this together with the word tomorrow is he's trying to say, when, when the word tomorrow is brought out, it equals the defeat of Israel's enemies and rest for the people of God. The defeat of Israel's enemies and rest for the people of God. So when Moses says, tomorrow I'm going to go up on the hill, the ears of the people of Israel should perk up and be like, seems like we're going to win. This is an anchor for them. Seems like, seems like we're going to win. The Lord is teaching them to rest. They're going to join him in battle, but it's not their effort that wins the war. And so Moses goes up the hill to stand overlooking the battle with the staff of God in his hand. If you recall, the staff of God is this marker of God's authority. It's been used uh, throughout the book of Exodus for the deliverance of Israel. And he takes this staff that he has used to bring about the plagues, to part the Red Sea. Here's another symbol of God's faithfulness. Moses says, I'm going to go up the hill. I'm going to take my staff. We read in verse 10. 
So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Now I want you to notice something here. This is the first time where we get a command and the person who receives the command obeys. Joshua actually obeys. Normally, the Lord tells the children of Israel, like, hey, you should do this, and they don't do it. And then he tells them again, and then they ignore it. They don't do it. They do it halfway. But Joshua, he obeys. He does it. Now, this is a bit of foreshadowing for us, and this would mean things to the original uh, readers and the later generations, because Joshua is being made clear here to be the successor to Moses. Like Moses, he obeys the Lord, laying the groundwork, the foundation for the future uh, story when he will uh, be made successor. Now, Moses, Aaron, and Hur go up the hill. Hur is this man who is the son of Caleb. If uh, We don't see this now, but when they are scouting out the promised land, uh, Caleb is the one who goes with Joshua to spy out the land. He's the one who gives this favorable report when the rest of the spies are like, there's no way we can do this. There are giants in the land. We are afraid we will, we will, we will be destroyed. Caleb and Joshua, they come back and they're like, we got it. The land is ours. You can see the, the path of God's faithfulness and you can see the encouragement building in uh, her's heart, which, you know, trails off to Caleb. There's this tale of, here's what God has done, and I was there at the battle with Amalek, and I saw God's faithfulness. And I'm sure that that was in Caleb's mind when he went with Joshua out to scout this out. He was like, these these giants seem pretty big, but God was faithful in the battle at Amalek. Now in verse 11, we get some more info here, a little description of the actions of Moses upon the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. So what are we to make of this? Because basically the description is, Moses raises his hands up high, the children of Israel win, he gets tired, they lose. Like, what's that about? We could come at it from a number of angles. We could think about, okay, how is this working? What sort of what sort of, sort of work is Moses doing there? Is it the positioning? Uh, you know, there's a, a number of scholars who have uh, speculated about the process of how Moses uses his hands. What's he doing there? Is he perhaps using this flag to indicate movements of where the troops should go so that Israel could see him? There, there's a number of things. We could go into those things but the main thing that I want you to notice here 
And I think the main thing that, that Scripture points out to us here is that the description of this battle is unlike any other. The description of this battle is unlike any other battle description. The focus is not on the strategic positioning of the troops. It's not on the passion, the fervor with which they fight, how skillfully they wield their, their weapons. It's not with their, uh, their might and their strength. The focus is completely on the hill. The battle is happening in the valley below. But the rider directs our attention to the hill. The victory was won, not by those in the battle, but by the one with arms stretched out upon the hill. It was won. It was God's victory won upon the hill. Now upon that hill, Moses does indeed have his arms raised. He's participating with God in this work. Moses is completely dependent upon the Lord to move and to work in this battle. Moses was holding his staff, the instrument of divine power, his symbol of God's authority. And when he holds it up, it does a couple things. What he's essentially doing is he has us in this position of dependence upon the Lord. He's holding up this staff in one sense as an act of humble submission to the Lord. Like, Lord, this is your battle. I am in dependence upon you and you work. But simultaneously, as the people were there down in the battle fighting, they could look up and they could see Moses on the hill holding the symbol of God's faithfulness. This staff, the staff of God, his authority has brought us through. The staff of God has parted the Red Sea. The staff of God has struck the rock and brought forth living water when there was no water. It's God's faithfulness on display that brings this inspiration to his people. They see that and they think, God will not fail us. We are down here. He's told us to go and fight with Amalek, and we cannot lose because God has already won. He is faithful again and again. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Joshua was at a huge disadvantage. He had soldiers who were untrained. They didn't have the same type of armory that uh, Amalek had. They were slaves who complained. I think that was their best skill, basically. Complaining slaves against a people who historically have been known just to wage war. But it's God who brings them victory. It is God's faithfulness who carries them. And so we find the, the, this command to memorialize this victory. In verse 14, then, Moses, or then the Lord said to Moses, write this, as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So we have kind of like a little footnote here, like write this in a book, 
The purpose for that is because there wasn't, a, uh, you know, most often they would kind of do a little chisel it into stone sort of thing. But here it's like we need to get this on paper so we can carry it with us. No one's going to be pulling around like this huge rock with letters on it. That's bad news. You don't want to do that. Scroll's the way they want to go. So the Lord tells them, this scroll here, you should write this in this memorial book. Write it down to be transported with them and passed on to later generations. Why? Because we need a record of God's faithfulness. Because we're too quick to forget God's faithfulness. We get discouraged. We need to be able to look back and be like, okay, here's where God was faithful. Here's how he worked, how he moved. When it didn't seem like there was a way, he made a way. This is the purpose of this book. Write this as a memorial in the book and recite in it the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, the children of Israel do not destroy Amalek here. But this, they show up again and again throughout Scripture. This is a promise of what God will eventually do through Saul and David. They will eventually destroy Amalek. This people who attacks them unprovoked. There's people who constantly are stirring up problems with Israel. But the real reason for this attack, the, the real reason for this response that God has them defeat this group of people called Amalek is not, uh, is not just because God wanted them gone, but because like the people of Egypt, they were trying to take God's firstborn into captivity. When you went into war... If you survived the war, you became slaves. And God's like, I just rescued my people from slavery. You're not going to lose this battle to become slaves again. So this group of people, Amalek, are standing in the way of God's promises. God wants to deliver his people to this final rest in the promised land. They've already been had this small rest at Rephidim, the place of rest. And here, Amalek opposes that rest. And so God is preventing, uh, protecting his firstborn son. And so he says, this is going to be a constant theme, a constant battle, so we need to memorialize this. Whenever you face these unprovoked attacks, whenever you face Amalek, know that this here is a, a, a record of God's faithfulness. Now we wrap up in verse 15, 16. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So here's another memorial that is put, into, put in place. Moses builds an altar. This is not an altar of sacrifice, but a memorial altar, an altar of thanksgiving. This would be a tangible reminder to God's people uh, of whoever would pass by it, of God's faithfulness. When they would go by, they would remember, that's the spot where God was faithful, where he rescues and saves. Right, today, we have these kind of same memorials that are in place. You can go to the uh, sites of famous battles. You can visit where there were great victories. And those things are designed to not only remember those who were lost, but to root your... Uh, your national pride in those victories. 
And here, we're members of the household of faith. We're members of the kingdom of God. And we, our God is a faithful God. And so we have these memorials in our life to remind us because we're a people who are faithless. We stray. We wander. We need to be reminded of who God is. So they build this altar. And they call the name of it, The Lord is my banner. Now, before, you know, this can mean like a number of things. Lord is my banner. Most often you're probably thinking like, happy birthday banner. Or like, used car sales here. Like, that's super lame. You know, that's not the banner it's talking about. This banner is a military term. And it's often used as a signal of some sort, a call to arms. It's a battle flag, a victorious flag. Would be raised up and lifted high over victories. When you conquer a site, when you conquer a city, to, to let the peoples know that you have won victory in this battle, you raise your flag over the capital or over that city so that all might see who the victor is. And here, Moses says, children of Israel, all who would trust in Jesus, the Lord is your banner. He has already won the victory. Now, you and I, we're still in this battle. We're still living this life, much like the children of Israel were. We're still walking through life, and things are still difficult. Things are still hard. We're getting attacked out of nowhere, unprovoked, because Satan hates us. He's a huge jerk. Like, let's just be real. It is this banner under which we stand. The banner of Christ. The Lord is our banner. The Lord is our banner. And this is simultaneously linked with the hand upon the throne of the Lord. This is Moses' dependence upon the Lord. The hand upon the throne of the Lord. What this calls back to for the children of Israel is that the, the memory of the battle being won, not in the trenches, but on the hill. The battle being won, not by those in the battle, not by those participating in this hand-to-hand -hand combat, these little skirmishes, but being won by the one with arms outstretched upon the hill. The Lord is trying to bring you and I to a place of rest, much like the children of Israel. He's trying to get us to live in that tension where we can just relax, where we're told that we could, like Psalm 23, the sheep there lay down by streams of cool water because the Lord is our shepherd. He's our protector. He's our strength. He's our shield. The Lord is trying to lead us into this rest. 
And like Moses on the hill, our ultimate rest comes on a hill. Jesus Christ, arms outstretched for all to see. And at that moment, Satan thought that he had the victory. He thought that he was about to raise his victory flag, that he had won. He thought that he was about to put up his banner. But when it looks like there's no way, the Lord makes a way. Even in death, Jesus conquers death, Satan's sin once and for all, ultimately defeating so that we can live as new members of his kingdom under his banner as his people. And so our ultimate allegiance is not to any nation, not to any land, but to the king of kings. And we sit under his banner. We kneel under his authority. We look to him as our protector, as the one who faithfully provides for us, who meets our needs, and who gives us ultimate rest. So we don't have to work. We don't have to try to protect ourselves because Jesus has faithfully done it. He has already completed this work so, uh, so thoroughly that we can't even participate in it. There's no room for you to participate in something that's already done. Your job is to rest. And oftentimes we don't like that because we want to make it known that like, oh, I'm doing my part. I'm working hard. I'm not lazy over here. And oftentimes we, we don't like to acknowledge that we need that help. That we need to be saved and rescued. Jesus saves and rescues. He gives us rest so that way we don't have to keep working. It's tiring. You guys know. You slip back into that mindset of trying to work. Like we were talking about earlier. When the lights go out. When you're alone in your room. There you are, with your thoughts, trying to justify your existence, trying to make yourself valuable by thinking of maybe the people who, who really care about you. So-and-so remembered to call me this week. They, they must really care. I got, got mail. Those small things where we look to be like, man, I'm valuable. But Jesus says you're already valuable. Those things don't matter. You're so valuable, Jesus says, that I was willing to give my own life to show you, even when you hated me, and maybe you even hate him still this morning. He says, even when that was going down, I still loved you. That's how valuable you are to me. And no one can take that value away because Jesus laid down his life to show it. To show you how faithful he is. So that when other things fail you, when people fail you, when your job fails you, when the government fails you, when all the things that we tend to put our hope in, when those things fail you, when they disappoint you, Jesus is there, strong, solid, faithful. Again and again, never to dis disappoint his people. He is 100% faithful, has never failed. Trust, trust, trust in Jesus. 
Like the children of Israel, this is a message that we need to hear again and again and again because we have bad ears. It goes either in one ear and out the other or we're just like, I don't want to hear it. Eventually it begins to take root in the heart of the children of Israel. And they show fruit. Let's hear that message this morning that the Lord is faithful and let's respond. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for your kindness in showing us your faithfulness in Jesus. We're thankful that you have rescued and saved. Lord, we're thankful that you have made a way for new life. And that ultimately, Lord, you're the one who gives us value. Lord, we can be accepted adopted into your family, fully loved by Jesus. We can receive Lord, that new life and become members of your family. What a joy, what a privilege it is, Lord, to have that. And so, Lord, we're tired of working we're tired of striving and justifying our existence, trying to find value. And Lord, we want to look to you as the one who ultimately gives us new life and new um, identity in Jesus. And Lord, we want to find that rest in you. If we've been searching for that for a while, been walking with you for a while, but yet have not yet found a way just to sit in that place of rest. Lord, we pray that you would make yourself known to us just in a wonderful and real way. Amen. Amen.